There are a couple of reasons why I knew I would like Olivia Ellen Lloyd's music before I pressed play. You could say that I came for the ghosts and small town upbringing and stayed for the songs because I had a little bit of experience with the first example and a lot of first-hand knowledge of the second. Few artists have a backstory filled with as many Southern Gothic bona fides, none of which I know of that extend the kind of wholehearted embrace for their hamlets of origin like Olivia does. If Appalachian culture is in need of an ambassador, it could do far worse than to elect this native of Shepherdstown, the oldest town in West Virginia, whose debut album Loose Cannon serves up 10 songs that range across many points in the country music spectrum. It is a record that revels in Saturday night before seeking Sunday morning redemption, that maps out the ambivalence that accompanies longing for home and going back to it, while also making room for Olivia's new hometown of Brooklyn, New York to be present in the mix. Welcome to our episode on Olivia Ellen Lloyd. Coming up is our conversation touching on her intriguing backstory and how she finds herself thriving in a much different place and where she grew up while still embracing her home place how she has a knack for bringing our worst impulses to life in a song, and much more, including music from her album Loose Cannon, like the song you're hearing now, High and Lonesome. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. Really enjoying your record, Loose Cannon. There is a push and pull to this album, I think, thematically and sonically almost a Saturday night, Sunday morning kind of of an approach to this collection of songs. Would you say that's correct? That is correct. And that's a really good way of putting it. I don't know if anyone else has uh, has used the Saturday night, Sunday morning uh, comparison before, but I really like that. I might steal that from you. <laughs> so tell us, for example, about the Olivia Ellen Lloyd honky-tonk versus 
other country honky-tonk music. Yeah, I, that's a great... Um, I, I was raised in West Virginia, and I grew up around um, country music. Uh, my father is a musician, although he was really more playing... Uh, the the running the gambit of bar of bar tunes so from Towns Van Zant to Tom Petty uh, anything somebody wanted to hear on a Friday night at the bar my dad had probably learned um, including some Bob Marley and also some George Jones you know uh, very diverse uh, but I fell in love with honky tonk music really uh, when I moved away from West Virginia and moved to Michigan <clears throat> pardon me I got I was very homesick and I started listening to old songs and I'd always loved Patsy Cline and from Patsy Cline you just fall directly into the, you know, the world of, of honky tonk music. Um, and I felt, you know, really loved the Bakersfield sound and um, I love George Jones and I love uh, just that great, unique sound of classic country music. But when I was making this record, what we really wanted to do was sort of run the gambit of my country music taste, so so taking it all the way from Hank Williams to artists like Jason Isbell, who are making music now. Uh, so the the more classically influenced songs had to have sort of an updated edge, so that the album didn't sound completely disjointed. Uh, so we really work to put the sonic elements together. I mean, the pedal steel plays its very traditional role in songs like uh, "For God's Sake," uh, whereas it, it is more of sort of an ambient piece in, in songs like River Run, You Almost Can't Hear It. So uh, we tried to sort of play with that uh, breadth of genre while we were making the record. <laughs> there is a lushness and vulner- vulnerability here in many of the songs, like In the Valley especially, or Emily, or Sorrow, and they have that emotional complexity. They have that emotional complexity and how much are these songs autobiographical and how much might they be character studies? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Uh, So I would say that it's a mix. I would say that most of my writing starts out uh, very autobiographical, but as I continue to develop the song, I tend to remove myself from it a bit. Uh, There's an exception to that rule on either end of it, and I will say In the Valley is not at all about me. And Emily is just straight up about my life and about an experience I had. Um, so there are exceptions to that rules, but typically the way my writing process goes, I, I, I am a strict adherent to the like 30 minutes every morning with a cup of coffee. I, I sort of free write and journal. And most of my songs come from that. So the writing process very much is like at the end of the week, I'll sort of look through what I've written and, and pick up the stuff that I remember, you know, if it gets stuck in my head, it's a really good, it's a good sign that it's something I really want to keep. Uh, and then I'll develop on that theme. And of course, when you're writing a song, you have meter and you have groove and you have melody to all think about. So often uh, the seed of a personal story gets twisted and moved to fit to fit the overall groove and feel of like a really good line. So like, for example, Sorrow the first line that came up was the problem with liquor is I'll drink it. <laughs> uh, and the rest of the song is, I mean, that song is, is pretty broad. It, it, it's about me in the sense that it's sort of about everyone who struggles with, with depression, but the, the development of the song sort of came on, like, how do we build a world around this one idea, this one idea of, of, you know, our, our worst impulses <laughs> and how simple it is, you know, the issues that we, that we have surrounding them, you know, 
over, I drink too much because I let myself, basically, you know? <laughs> Definitely on the Saturday night side of things, that was Sorrow, which Olivia mentioned in our conversation. Another song she mentioned that stands out on the album is about her very close friend from childhood who died of complications from a viral infection in 2011 while in Australia. Here's a bit of Emily.
Much of this record is optimistic. Tell us about those parts of it. Yeah, you know, it's a hard time to have optimism right now, but it is important, right? <laughs> um, I would say that the song The West is very optimistic. Um, I'd say a lot of the so- this album involves exploring possibility um, or mourning the loss of time. Uh, but of course with the loss of time comes the, you know, gaining of experience. So I think, I think songs like the West are overtly optimistic because it looks toward the future, but all of the songs, uh, at least for me have expressed a lot of growth and, or express a lot of my own personal growth. And while, um, you know, growth is not always overtly easy uh, it is positive in the end, right? Like it, it does eventually <laughs> resolve into something great. So I would say, even in the even in the sad songs, um, there's a bit of hope and a bit of optimism. I will say one of my favorite things about Emily, the song is even though it's quite a sad song, um, one of the things I wanted to do in that song was preserve the memory of my friend, and and I I don't know that there's any higher calling or higher honor as a writer um, than bringing a person, for lack of a better word, to life for a minute, bringing an idea to life. And so the optimism of like the hope of, you know, someone dying but still being remembered and their legacy being carried on, I think is actually quite powerful and positive, even though, of course, loss is extraordinarily painful and difficult. (laughs) You've talked about those losses with your friend, with family, with folks that it seemed to suddenly happen once you moved away from Shepherdstown. And that, along with many fantastic and strange events surrounding the locale, seemed to be bound somehow in loose cannon. Can you talk about that? Sure, yeah. I, um, I don't know how familiar you or your listeners are with Shepherdstown. It's sort of regionally pretty well known it's the oldest town in west virginia and it there's this very it's funny there's this very hokey hokey show called ghosts of shepherdstown that's on some travel channel because the town has like a a reputation for being haunted and i mean you know like many places in appalachia or sort of in the mid-atlantic region in general it was a civil war you know hospital and their antietam battlefield is right up the right up the road in maryland and uh a lot of us from town joke about the place being haunted or us being the ghosts of town. And I'm from such a, you know, a relatively long line of people. I'm a third generation resident of the of the town. And I remember, you know, when my friends started dying, I, I had this, and it was, I had an awful five years where it just like, I had so many friends die and my father died. And I remember having these sort of nonsensical thoughts where I was like, well, that's what you get for leaving home, which is ridiculous. Of course, it's not what caused uh, all of these terrible things to happen at once. 
But at the time, it really felt true. And I definitely, sometimes the more mystical side of me does feel like the town has this pretty strong energetic pool. And it's definitely a source of inspiration for me in these songs. And and I am fully a product of that town for better and worse, you know, uh, and, and a product of, of Appalachia and Appalachian culture, which which runs pretty strong through my family. Who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? We're about to take a trip to the most haunted town in America. It's the second season of Destination America's hit series, Ghosts of Shepherdstown. And our tour guide for this journey is paranormal investigator Nick Groff. Good morning, my friend. Good morning, Amy. How you doing? Uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia was named the most haunted town in America. It's reportedly so haunted that the town's police chief was forced to enlist the help of paranormal investigators. Well, Nick Groff, along with two others, tackled the town's supernatural in season one of the Destination America breakout hit Ghosts of Shepherdstown, but in the season two debut tonight. That was some of the news coverage for the show Ghosts of Shepherdstown, which helped give Olivia's hometown a renewed notoriety in recent years. If nothing else, the town would stand a good chance to be inhabited by ghosts of its Civil War past. As she mentioned, the Battle of Antietam, also known as the Battle of Sharpsburg, was fought just a few miles away, across the Potomac River, and the town itself saw another battle beginning two days later. Antietam was the bloodiest day in American history, with Union and Confederate forces counting 22,717 dead, wounded, or missing. There were Revolutionary War battles, but no Civil War battles near where I live in western North Carolina. And there may be a ghost in our house, although I've never experienced it. Two other people saw it at the same time one day when I wasn't there, though. And being a house that was begun sometime in the 1880s, it would have had plenty of time to pick up a hate or two. It was built by my great-grandparents, was my paternal grandmother's home all her life, it was where my dad grew up, and where I moved to in the mid-90s. And it is outside of a small town, probably not all that different from Shepherdstown. Although I had dreams of moving off to a big city years ago, I never did, and talking to Olivia Ellen Lloyd brought to mind that time in my life and got me wondering how different my story would be if I had ever done what she did and pulled up stakes. Before landing in Brooklyn, she spent her college years in Michigan and went on to live in places like Guatemala City and Dallas. I asked her about how she adjusted to life in cities so different than where she grew up. Oh, definitely. Um, especially first going away to college, the um, culture shock was immense and unex- frankly unexpected. Um, I, I didn't anticipate it being so different. Uh, and I and I frankly, like from age 18 to 21, felt a good deal of angst about that change. Um, but once I had an opportunity to see how other people lived and experience other other ways of life, I, I sort of became obsessed with the idea. So yeah, uh, Dallas and Guatemala City were in the same year and they were definitely a year where I was traveling around a lot and trying to find who I was and where I belonged. Um, in Dallas, I was training to be an American Airlines flight attendant. Uh, very, very bad idea for me, but an interesting job and shout out to all my friends who are still in the aviation industry. Um, and then I moved to Guatemala actually to teach art at a uh, school in Guatemala City, which was an amazing experience. And frankly, I would have stayed longer, but I ran out of money. <laughs> uh, both experiences were immensely eye-opening. I, I met so many different kinds of people. 
and definitely propelled me to New York City because I realized that some of the best storytelling and experiences in general come from surrounding yourself with people who aren't exactly like you. Uh, and I, I gained a lot of perspective and a lot of valuable knowledge about how human beings work simply by being around people who weren't the same as me uh, and who had had different life experiences. Now, I'm curious about how you found a home in Brooklyn or in New York. Take us through that, you know, like it, it, you've, you've jumped around from place to place, but now you've put down roots in a completely different environment, but it's also very representative of the kind of music that you're making. I think it's probably pretty easy to find like minds in Brooklyn at the same time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely moved to New York on somewhat of a whim. Um, I had spent some time traveling around about a year uh, and then I came home uh, and I realized I just I, I needed to feel the experience of I wanted to feel the experience of traveling without the the stress and frankly the expenditure of traveling all the time and uh, I found that contrary to what a lot of people say it's actually not that hard to find affordable living in Brooklyn now I'll never be able to buy anything here but I don't live in like Park Slope or one of the you know Williamsburg I, I live pretty far south and it's nice and quiet down here and and I found you know good work and uh sometimes less than good work, but it still paid. And uh, definitely the thing I like about Brooklyn and New York City the most is that there's every kind of person here. And I'm sure I'm wrong about that on some level, but I, 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 if you ever get bored of your neighborhood, you can just take the train and try another one on for size. And it's sometimes it's like a different city. Sometimes it's like an entirely different country. Um, the culture in the city is just incredibly fascinating and diverse. And there's certainly nowhere like it that I've ever lived before and maybe nowhere else in the world like it. Um, I found incredible art of all genres from visual art to performing arts, and that really fuels me. But more than that, I, I, I really like not having to constantly be around the same kind of person all the time. My friends and community here are as diverse as the city from, you know, jazz and soul and funk singers to lawyers to, you know, baristas to coffee shop managers to the best bartender in, in Brooklyn. You know, it's it's such a lively and diverse community. And for the most part, we all play really well together, um, you know, socially. So I, I have just really fallen in love with the unique opportunity to live in a place, you know, packed in so closely with other kinds of people. A lot of times when somebody leaves a small town and goes and does something in the in their life and, and, and is notable in some way, then coming back home is maybe a bit awkward. A lot of places don't necessarily recognize what uh, the hometown person has done out there in the world. But it seems that that's not the case with the reaction that folks are giving Loose Cannon and what you're doing in your music back in Shepherdstown. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Shepherd sounds such a such a quirky little place. There, there was definitely some of that when I moved away to college. Um, a lot of questions as to why I didn't, you know, go to WVU, which is a great school, and many of my friends attended. 
when my grandfather was still alive, he used to joke all the time that I was getting above my raisin, but he really wanted me to. So it wasn't like a serious, he wasn't seriously concerned. Um, I think I'm, uh, my, my hometown is, is very tight knit, especially in certain circles. I mean, there are only a couple thousand of us. And I have the benefit of the fact that my dad was so well loved and so well known within the community that I think um, once I was ready to start performing again, folks were so ready to support that sort of multi-generational experience, uh, you know, both both I, hopefully because they like the music, but also because you know, it, it reminded them of the years that my dad spent entertaining the town. And he really did. I mean, he played at weddings and at the Mac, which is our, you know, our longstanding local watering hole. Um, and people, he was really, he was such a kind man, really, really well loved. So I, I definitely would credit both my dad and my mom, who is, you know, grew up in, in that town and, and my grandparents who were mayor of the town for sort of fomenting me as like a real hometown girl, even if I leave, I think I get a little bit of a pass. <laughs> Can you talk about how much of West Virginia specifically, or more broadly in the South, what you might recognize in your music and your lyrics and somehow in your songs? And on the other side of that, can you, how do you see yourself portraying those communities and the culture to people outside of West Virginia, outside of the South? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can ask anyone in Brooklyn. I'm basically the cultural ambassador to West Virginia and Appalachia in New York City. Um, you know, I think and I've heard this experience echoed by many other Southern and Appalachian artists. When I left, I wasn't really sure how to present myself to other people. You know, the South gets such a bad rap <laughs> and Appalachia gets such a bad rap uh, culturally. Um I felt, frankly, like a little nervous about living in Michigan or living in in other in New York City and and being proud about where I'm from. But um, luckily, I got over that because there's just so much to be proud of. Uh, as as far as sonically goes, I really uh, consider a lot of this album to be about missing home, about going home, about feeling ambivalent about home. Uh, it is very much, I, in, I, my, I would hope, an album about uh, loving where you come from and also knowing that you need to leave. So sonically, I, I really wanted to evoke uh, the feel of Appalachia and West Virginia, uh, but from the perspective of somebody uh, in the city. And one of my friends, actually, uh, who is also from West Virginia and moved to Brooklyn, told me that he felt like he could hear both, you know, West Virginia and the city in the, in the music, which is what I was going for, for sure. Um, as far as what I do in my daily life and how I try to present Appalachia culturally, you know, I was raised by multi-generation Appalachian um, residents. My, my grandparents were raised in the northern panhandle of West Virginia, and we have documentation that they were there longer than the place has been a state, so just a little while. <laughs> and I was raised on the um, stories of, you know, the incredible independence and uh compassion and and community that Appalachians uh, built. And, and that comes from, you know, that goes from the battle for Blair Mountain, where we fought for labor rights all the way down to, you know, the 
the fact that Mother's Day was founded by a West Virginian with because, you know, the mother is in the, you know, supposed to be so revered in our in our culture. I, I I spent a lot of time defending West Virginia and and our culture and our people to people who might only listen to what somebody else tells them about the state. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what we can do to hold ourselves accountable um, to our past while also building a sustainable future. Uh, and I have a real hope to return to the area. I sort of fell in love with New York City and somehow five years passed without me really meaning to. And I, I've been looking really lately at what it would take to return because I, I miss it there so much. And I feel like I've, I've learned so much from being out elsewhere that I want to bring back and incorporate into my community. Appalachia in general and places like West Virginia have had a long history of of economic impoverishment, I guess you could say, and a lot of the attitudes that have been expressed, you know, negative sort of views from outside looking at mountain folk, like you alluded to earlier. Now, at the same time, in the 21st century, things are better in some ways, but it feels like the mountain regions, Appalachia, West Virginia, they're just still far enough removed from the centrality of, of the, <laughs> you know, the capital cities, places like New York. It, it seems like you wonder when it's really going to take it up a notch to be able to get past some of these hurdles. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's such a big question. I mean, Unfortunately, I feel that, well, there are sort of two sides to this coin, right? I mean, in some ways, I think there's a real benefit from being removed from the mid-Atlantic and north northern New England culture. Um, sure, they've got all the money, but uh, Lord, if they're not trying to, you know, mine as much of our music and our, our culture and art as they possibly can and bring it back up north, I, I think we really have something special in that we're sort of nestled in and, and building something that's maybe not as financially, you know, money focused and obsessed um, as maybe other regions. Uh, on the other hand, I think uh, West Virginians and Appalachians and Southern people are really uh, unfairly lambasted for being uneducated. And at the same time, our, um, you know, governments are are working to further disenfranchise us. Um, and it's really tough because many uh, current politicians have run on uh, exploiting the real fear and wealth, well-earned fear in the region of, uh, you know, uh, imposition by outside forces and and uh, oversight and over over um, regulation and by the government, which is, you know, I mean, all you need to do is look at the, you know, 150 years of, of West Virginia history to understand why West Virginians might be a little leery of a politician. Uh, so there are sort of two things that we have to work on, which is both preserving the really, really good and rare and incredible parts of our culture and allowing Appalachians and Southern people to take pride in that and, and, and enjoy in that. I mean, uh, there's been such an amazing, and I would really credit Rhiannon Giddens from being, um, a pioneer in showing how black history and uh, the acoustic mu music scene are the same thing and, and, and really reminding us that we owe uh, so much of our musical cultural heritage in the South to our um, 
to the black brothers and sisters who lived at live here with us. And I think if we could find a way to connect pride in that cultural root with all Appalachians, then we would really move forward culturally in so many ways. Uh, and some of that involves, you know, distinguishing ourselves from our friends in the North. But at the same time, I really wish that we would invest in young people in the state and invest in education uh, so that our potential doesn't get, you know, wasted on the vine. I, I think uh, there's a really incorrect perception that Southern people and Appalachian people are un, uneducated or stupid. And I, I've lived all over the place. And I'll tell you, there are as many stupid people in New York City as there are in West Virginia, probably more because <laughs> of the population. Um, I think what we really need is is some real faith in the uh, in the future, in the in the young people in the in the state so that and the region so that we can, you know, better serve our future uh, endeavors. I tried to really put a big question. <laughs> it was a big answer to a really big question. I could probably go on about that for hours, weeks, and days. I feel like I have had a lot of conversations over a glass of whiskey about this issue. <laughs> yeah, if you're not careful and you keep talking that way, there's going to be more people that move into places like Shepherdstown and buy up all the real estate again. Well, that's already a problem in Shepherdstown, for better or worse. We're just close enough to D.C. that people have heard about us. <laughs> That's about all for our episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and might talk to someone you know and let them know about it. You can follow the series on most every platform where you can find podcasts. And once you do, it helps even more when you give it a good rating and a review. Spreading awareness by giving this series a top rating and even more so with a review will make Southern Songs and Stories and the artists it profiles more likely to be found by more people just like you. Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it.